0: Hey friends, and welcome to another episode of the Dream Nation Love Podcast. I'm your host, Yulia. On the show today, I interview Emily Chang. She's a strategic business leader and CEO of McCann World Group China. Before that, she served as the CMO of Starbucks China, and that's when we became friends on LinkedIn. I really admire her leadership. She does it with grace and kindness, and I think that's really important. This was like my first global podcast with many more to come. Prior to Starbucks, Emily was the chief commercial officer for IHG, where she was responsible for all commercial functions across greater China. She looked after 320 plus hotels and a team of 5,200 sales and marketing members. She began her career at Procter & Gamble and Apple. On the show, we really talk about her new book. It's called The Spare Room, which is a new book that comes out in April and you should really order it the spare room was also the topic of her first tedx talk that you can check out on her website emily started lending out her spare room out to people in need when she was in college and it's something that she continued to do to this day you know she's married she's got kids she's got a hedgehog she continues to offer the spare room which i found to be really inspiring and really incredible we talk about how you can discover what your spare room is you know is it your time is it your money is it a skill Maybe it's a physical room, or maybe it's in the form of another gift that you can offer to the world. We also talk about how to find your purpose. Emily suggests that your purpose lies at the intersection of two ideas. On one side, you have the thing that offends you, and on the other, there's what you have to offer. And somewhere in between is the intersection of your purpose. And hopefully by the end of this podcast, uh, you'll have enough information to find your own purpose. I hope you enjoy the podcast and I hope you share it with a friend because sharing is caring. Please stay in touch. I'm at Dream Nation Love on all the social channels, including LinkedIn. So definitely ping me and definitely let Emily and I know what your spare room is. Have a great day and enjoy the show. Emily, it's so nice to see you. (laughs) You too, Yulia. We've been talking for some time. (laughs) I know, we've been online friends and I love all the work that you've been doing. And finally, I was like, we have to do a podcast and we made it happen. Here we are, we're good, we're good. (laughs) Are you you in the office right now in McCann? Is everybody back to work or is everybody still at home? I'm here, which
1: is why I have a little bit of flexibility, but tomorrow we go back. So so today is sort of the last day and I'm uh, in my little home office here where I can get a little bit of quiet.
0: (laughs) I love it, I love it. Thank you so much for joining me. I haven't read your book yet, but I pre-ordered it and I'm so excited for it. And I was really surprised to learn about all this other work. Like I just know you as this like amazing powerhouse executive, but I had no idea about the spare room until I started reading about it. And I was like, Um, oh my gosh, this is so fascinating. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. I know how important, your time is like it's it's like tiny little fractions here and there. You're really busy. So thank you for coming on the show.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. We have a lot in common. And so I was looking forward to getting to know you a little bit better as well.
0: I also like your style too. I was gonna say like you have an amazing fashion style. Like just just as a side note so I was reading about um your book, The Spare Room, and I was blown away because I know you from your work as an executive. So I know you've been a Oh my gosh, everywhere. You've been at Apple. You've been, you've been the last one. Um, you were at Starbucks. Your experience is just huge. But I was blown away to find out about the spare room and your whole entire spare room concept came out of when you were in college, I guess you were driving. But I'd love to hear about how, um, how you came about the spare room.
1: Yeah, I I think I sort of stumbled into it. Like you said, I ran into the first girl who stayed in my spare room when I was just, I had just turned 20 years old and just felt like it wasn't something I could walk by. I, I think we all come across things that aren't right at work and in our personal lives on a daily basis, but. Once in a while, we see something that we just think, this can't go on. This isn't okay. And, and that night, I remember it was raining. It was like slushy rain in upstate New York. And I really wanted to get home. I still had so much to do, but I just couldn't get myself to step on the gas. And I think that's your moment you know, that I call in the book, your offense, when you identify the thing that you're never going to be able to walk away from. And, you know, in the book, we have an anthology of stories. For some people, it's ocean plastics. For other people, it's relating to different things that you see and that maybe you experience in your own life or in your daughter's life or just in the world around you, right? So I think that's how I first came into serving in this way, you know, serving the people around me in my own sort of neighborhood, my own society. And just over the years, we've just continued to find people who needed a safe place to live, or they have found us. So it started when I was single. Then my my husband now, who was my boyfriend at the time, got really involved with her right away. In fact, I was kind of wondering, you know, we're in our twenties and dating, how's he gonna feel about the fact that there's this teenage girl living in my apartment? And he was so supportive. He was just wonderful. And then later when we found all these other kids through the course of our marriage, whether we had just been married or even when we moved to Guangzhou in our mid twenties for our first international assignment, a kid came with us for a year, or when we went back to the States, and then when we came out to China to Shanghai the second time, we've come across so many different people who just needed a safe harbor, like a safe place to stay for a while. And and you know, for us it's something not only relatively easy to do, it's really a joyful thing for us to have people in our spare room. And I know for other people that sounds insane and they would never just bring a stranger into their spare room or a baby with special needs. But I think that's just our thing, you know? And I think the reason I wanted to write the book is there are like 15 or 16 stories in there. Some are ours and a lot of them are other people. It just just shows you the breadth of everybody's got a thing. And I think now more than ever, especially in the workplace, we know that our businesses need to stand for a purpose, that our brands need to represent something and do good as well as do good business. And and I think it's just really challenging for a leader to lead that kind of business if they don't know what they stand for personally. So that's why I think this book, I, I hope, will be useful to people because it's all about defining your own social legacy. And I think when you're clear on who you are and what you stand for, You know, you can live with more intentionality and I think you can lead with more authenticity. And hopefully you find a company that shares your ethos and then it all kind of comes together.
0: Yeah. And I think you're so right about authenticity because the authenticity that the company projects has to really be authentic. It can't just be like um, a front cover because there's no passion behind that. And then there's no mission and, and then everything falls apart. So you really have to like walk the walk and talk the talk totally and you know
1: after I wrote the book this was really on my mind and I thought okay I called it my professional halftime I've worked 22 years i probably got another 20 because I love work (laughs) so what do I want to do and it went everywhere in my mind from you know just writing and speaking to working for a nonprofit full-time I really looked at the scope you know like broadened the aperture frankly of what I might consider and I was wide open. But but actually McCann turned out to be the perfect place which is where I just landed about six months ago because I really feel like the company stands by this mission of helping brands play meaningful roles in consumers' lives. You know, when you see work that sparks a dialogue not about a product or driving consumption of a beverage but really changes the way people think I think it's a privilege to be a part of that kind of company and that of creating that kind of experience.
0: I love the motto of McCann, uh, truth well
1: told. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a company that doesn't shy away from truth, you know, yes. and, and, and as well, you know, we just recently had like this day for meaning and the fact that you would take 24 hours away from clients, away from day jobs. And really invest in what is meaning. How do we unpack truth? And how do we create a sense of belonging for everybody in the workplace? I just thought that was extraordinary. That's really putting your money where your mouth is, right?
0: Yeah, because a lot of the ideas don't come when you're sitting at the table. And you just need to create that space to be able to think. And sometimes with the day-to-day stuff, it's impossible. And like you ha- I block off time on my schedule just being like, okay, these are administrative times. These are thinking times. These are creative yeah. times. Because otherwise, like, it doesn't stop.
1: Totally. My schedule looks super bizarre because it's all blocked off in 50 minute increments. And a lot of people ask me, did something go wrong with your meeting invite? I'm like, no, I, th- I think anything we need to talk about in an hour can be talked about in 50 minutes. And that gives us all 10 minutes for bio breaks to go walk around, to plan ahead for the next meeting. And I think those are those little things that you sort of insert into your day so that you can approach each interaction with more intention and with more sort of preparedness as well.
0: Yeah, it gives you time to like brace yourself and like, like recalibrate before you walk in. Because sometimes like I'll run from one meeting into the next, but I won't be fully present in the other meeting, because I'm thinking about the previous meeting or the future meeting. So right. I'm not fully there. And I'm guilty of that. And it's, it's it's like, you have to bring yourself back, you have to go like, okay, I'm here now I'm present, like, and you just need a little bit of time, just a little bit of time to just be like, okay, where am I? Who am I? What hat am I putting on right now in this meeting? What problem am I trying to solve? Exactly. And I think you touched on something else that's really interesting. Some meetings
1: are just joyful. They're wonderful. You look forward to engaging with this person. Some are really tough. And that's just the course of the day. But if you know there's this really tough meeting coming up or you know the topic is going to be challenging or you're expecting it to be contentious, you know, plan ahead for that and then just give yourself 20 minutes afterward. Because you know you're probably going to come out of it probably not in your best state, right? So it gives you a little chance to digest, to put it aside, and then move on to the next thing and not let it sort of color the rest of your day.
0: Yeah, it's such a great reset. I love that idea. I was actually going to ask you something about the spare room again. How do you create a dynamic in the house that kind of is like kumbaya for everyone? Because everybody is different, right? Because every time you have a new energy enter your home, right? It's just a new energy so it affects if it affects everyone you know what is your advice for setting the tone for the energy and like setting the tone for the house
1: <laughs> that's a great question and it's a really sensitive one because you're right every time you bring somebody in the whole dynamic changes i think mm-hmm. the first thing we have to agree as a family to do it and that's my husband and i holding hands but it's also our daughter because we've had kids in our spare room since she can remember and some of them, she's now, you know, people ask her, are you an only child? And she'll joke, I've got older brothers, younger brothers, older sisters, younger sisters. She's had all four. And and that's been a really interesting experience for her to feel like she's part of such a bigger family, although not at one time. So last Christmas, we were in Seattle. And over that Christmas, we had three different spare room kids come visit us. One is now married and grown up, you know, and he brought his wife to visit us. One is Teo, who's in the book, and he and his new adoptive family came and stayed with us and we just love spending time together. They ended up extending for an extra week and we had two weeks with them, you know? So I think the fact that we have this sort of international family where people are in all different places around the world is is such a cool experience for all of us. So we have to level set up front to make sure we're all ready for this thing. And you know, some are a lot easier to manage. Our oldest kid was in his youngest in his early twenties and he just had a bad situation with um being swindled out of his his rent and needed a place to stay, but relatively self-sufficient. And then we've had the other end of the spectrum of a newborn baby who was only expected to live for a few days and just needed a safe place to die. So we've had to prepare ourselves emotionally and sort of physically for a very broad range of kids and then as they come in, it's also having that conversation with the person, if, if they're old enough to have the conversation, which is here are our family routines, here are our rituals. Look, we're not trying to be your parents. So here's what our expectations are gonna be. Here's what we can offer you. And here's, you know, we would love to hear the same from you. And then I think I think that at least gets the, the relationship such as it's going to be and evolve off on the right foot with as much transparency as
0: we can. And I love that in your book, you talk about, you know, what is your purpose, right? And you define the purpose as lying at the intersection of two ideas. Like on one side, you have the thing that offends you. And on the other side, you have what you have to offer. It's kind of like the, the circles that overlap. My brain Venn is not diagram. working. Yeah. Venn diagram. Thank you. It's a Venn diagram, right? Like <laughs> what offends you? and what you have to offer. And i love for you to talk a little bit about helping people find their purpose. Like I meet so many people, that are like, I don't really know what I'm doing in life. What am I doing? I, I always tell them, like, think about what you did as a kid. What did you what did you enjoy doing? Did you draw? Did you like think about that? Because at least like it might take you into that area of like what you enjoy. And that's like a basic primal layer that they can like stew in and figure it out. But I love your suggestion of Combining purpose and um, for purpose, which is combining uh, what offends you and what you have to offer. We talked about what is your purpose and you talk about purpose in your book a lot and you describe it as the Venn diagram that lies at the intersection of two ideas. Um, on one side, you have the thing that offends you, like the offense, and on the other side is, uh, is um, what you have to offer. And and that you describe as being your purpose. And uh, I love that. And um, I would love for you to talk about it a little bit more.
1: Sure. Like I said, I think it's important for leaders to have a very deep sense of self, who we are, what we stand for, what we want to accomplish. In our personal lives, mm-hmm. you know, like sort of what goes on your gravestone after you're gone? What do you want people to say about you and in your professional life? And ideally, they're congruent, but they don't always have to be 100% either, right? So I, I studied medicine. I really wanted to be a pediatric oncologist because that's really where my passion was and helping young kids, especially those who were sort of in a very vulnerable, hurt situation. And it turns out I don't have any emotional distance for that. So, you know, I think the spare room came along as a different way for me to serve that passion and that desire. And it didn't end up being my professional career. And I think that's totally okay. But you know, what it did do is by finding that sort of intersection and having a sense of, I know how I contribute to the world around me. Look, I'm not helping millions, but we've had 16 kids, you know, and that's been really fulfilling. I hope for those kids and also for our family that I think grounds me as a leader as well. And it helps me be more effective and it helps people understand like it's hard when you have a title or you sit in a certain office for people to see the human in you, to remember that you're a mother. You know like you said you just had a human come out of your body <laughs> i had one 12 years ago i'm a wife i'm a daughter i'm a sister i'm a lot of different things when i also know the purpose that i feel like i serve you know and the legacy the social legacy that i want to leave behind i think it does make me more approachable as a human being it lets people see me as more than the boss it lets them see that. I'm a well-rounded human who desires to leave an impact in in whatever, you know, what we call society, but like my workplace, my neighborhood, my world that I live in.
0: Well, you know, it's all about starting local too, you know, and like you change the lives of 16 people and they go on to change the life of 16 people and they go on to change the life of 16 people. But it's like a candle doesn't lose its flame by lighting another candle.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an encouraging thought and hopefully, you know, it is an amplifying idea. And I, I that's really what I hope for The Spare Room to be, right? I've already sort of committed all proceeds to the nonprofit, the board on which I sit. So this is not about making money. It's not about anything other than sharing something that I hope is helpful to other people. And, you know, to your point, maybe those 16, actually, I know quite a few of them have gone on to amazing lives, marriages, careers, you know, and and I hope that people who read the book will have the same outcome, which is... I'm a little bit more clear on what I want now. Because I do think most people, so many people will talk about, I want to do more, I just don't know what I want to do. Or, yeah, I want to also get involved, but I'm not sure how to get started. And the book is really designed to be very action oriented. And that's like the business side of me, right? Where at the end of the first chapter, we talk about how I came across my offer and and two other people who have done similarly in different industries. And then like, do you not have clarity on what your offer is? Well, let's go through these exercises. And by the end of chapter one, you'll be able to articulate, here's here's what I have. Here's what I have to give. And here's the value that I can contribute to the people and the community around me. And then the sap- second chapter is all about the offense. And we just talked about mine a little while ago. Everyone's got one. Some people have more than one. But do you know what your thing is? What's What's your sort of The thing that irresistibly calls you that makes you stop in your tracks and say this isn't okay this isn't good enough somebody has to do something and if it has to be me i'll do it so by the end of chapter two you'll be able to stop and say here's my here's my offense and then chapter three takes that venn diagram that you described perfectly and brings them together and says okay if i know what my offer is and i know what my offense is let's figure out the intersection of that and that is what i'm going to call my social legacy You know, and I didn't use the word purpose for a reason, Yulia, because I think purpose is so overarching and abstract and difficult to wrap your head around and and maybe overused or misused, where I tried to be more tangible with the idea of social legacy. So social is about society, right? It could be online. Like my social group could just be um, on my computer screen or my mobile phone screen. But it can also be the way I identify with my neighborhood. We have small communities in China. We call them Xiaoqi that could be your social group, it could be your country, some people really resonate with their country and in a very positively patriotic way, right? And some people resonate with the earth and say, this is my world and this is what matters to me. So defining what is social to you, your space, your community, and then the legacy you want to leave behind. And legacy is also kind of a big word, but it really just says, you know, how do we know that you are here? what do you want to leave behind such that when people look back, they say, gosh, we're glad she was in this place, you know?
0: Right. And uh, I was going to ask you, like, what was your dream as a kid? Did you always have this like urge? It sounds like you have an urge to heal. Cause I remember you have a degree in biology and you wanted to be a doctor. So you always have like a, mm-hmm. like a, like a nurturing quality, like a healing quality to your work. And, um, and I wonder if that was tied to your dreams as a child by any chance, or if you
1: had different dreams. Yeah, I always wanted to be, I was very specific, a pediatric oncologist. And it's really interesting to be talking about this now because my daughter's in seventh grade. I was in seventh grade when I had this major moment. We were, I created sort of this volunteer group because we were all musicians and we're thinking, you know, A, for extra credit, to be honest, but B, because we wanted to practice and use our practice for good, we started going to homes or to hospitals and performing music for free. And so we were in a children's hospital performing, and we were sort of in this hallway where all the kids' rooms were open so they could just listen from their hospital beds. And I just experienced a really not ideal interaction between a doctor and a young patient. And you could tell she had cancer, or I thought because she, she was bald and he was talking about the treatment not working. And I remember just being so horrified at that moment, how he could talk to this young girl like this without her parents there, and just left her devastated. And I remember she just looked to the door because I think she was looking for her parents. And I happened to be on the other side of that door holding my flute. And we, we made eye contact and I remember thinking, oh, you deserve so much more than that. And I wanna do that. So that was the moment I was like, I'm gonna be a cancer doctor for kids. And that's what I thought all the way through getting into med school. And that was when I realized I just don't have this emotional distance. Like I'm going to destroy myself <laughs> if I put myself in this situation every day. So that's when I sort of pivoted, and and at that point I'd been enrolled in an MD MBA course. It was like late 90s. HMOs had just come out in the states, and there was a lot of talk about hospital administration and understanding how to care for your patients. In that respect, and so I thought, well, maybe I'll just get an MBA. And I think you know, you quoted earlier in our email, "Dance to life's rhythms." I think that's a lot of what has allowed me to end up where I am because I did you know I realized this MD side is not going to be a good thing though my heart is there I don't have the distance to be successful and productive as a career. but then I went into the MBA side and I'm like well you know people say business school opens up lots of new doors maybe I can discover something else I love even though I've wanted to be a doctor since the seventh grade and and that took me down you know into a procter and gamble path and I enjoyed 11 years working at that awesome company and then just kind of continue to to float to opportunities where there was oh, again another intersection I guess I think in intersections so maybe I'm a really simple person my life is in Venn diagrams it's like where can I learn something and where can I contribute something yeah I know some people who just thrive on learning like all they want is to absorb new stuff I think it's I don't know if it's Myers-Briggs or one of those assessments that talks about it as input being your key driver I don't think that's me and a lot of people just want to contribute and they don't really care if they're learning new things. They just want to feel like they're adding value. And I think that's also not entirely me, but the intersection of those two things where I can feel like I'm adding value and it's useful for me to be here and I'm still learning. That's something that's, that's perfect for me. So I think starting where I wanted to really care for these kids who were sort of at their most vulnerable to finding a place where I can still serve people. Like, I totally buy into this concept of servant leadership. And and that's one of the reasons I, I chose this job. And I'm glad this job chose me because I have a team of about 400 that I get to take care of. And, you know, when you have a sizable group, and a lot of them are much younger, that you have a chance to build into, help them discover their passions, help them figure out what they want to do next, and just watch them thrive. That gives me the most joy in my job.
0: Yeah, and you learn from them, too. It's like a two-way street, you know? It's not just like a one-way... Right. Uh, dictatorship <laughs> and I think that's what's so wonderful about agencies is that like they keep you young too because there's a lot of young blood coming in and they also need guidance and you want to help them learn and you want to help them get to the next level because you kind of like see yourself in a lot of them you're like I was here I was here I remember when I was when I was your age but like it's so hard to find mentorship and advertising sometimes and it's so nice to be able to find those people and so nice to have leadership that invests in it
1: so I had the privilege of starting my career at Procter & Gamble, where they have a very established approach to mentoring. And, you know, they taught me the difference between mentoring, sponsoring, and advocating for people. And like, what a blessing that is, because lots of companies, like you said, don't have formal mentoring programs, much less all of that. And I think I've benefited tremendously from the people who have stepped up to mentor me, whether it's through a program or who saw potential in me and reached out. And that, that is something that is incredibly humbling. And, and it really makes you want to pay it forward. And I think that's been really motivating for me. You know, one of my earliest mentors, Vivian Bechtold is now my daughter's godmother. And we've been friends and colleagues, and she's been my mentor for over 20 years. And I just think about who I am in so much part because of how she invested in me. And that's just what I want to do for other people. You know, you want to turn and pull. And so, When you can remember the impact that somebody's had on you, you think, gosh, what an opportunity if I could even do that for one other person. So I just joined this new company that didn't have a formal mentoring program. And that's exactly what we're doing is we're trying to institute just that. Because I do think everybody benefits from having somebody who's there for them. And it's not the official boss. It's somebody alongside. It can be a peer mentor or mentor in a different function or in a different region who just knows enough about what you do to be helpful but far enough away that it's not a reporting line. And that person can just be somebody to bounce ideas off of and who can just turn and help you and give you perspective that sometimes you lose when you're mired in the day-to-day.
0: I love that. I think that is so important. And I think it's so great when companies take initiatives to do that because it improves everything, right? Because you're just basically improving the next workforce. Like everybody that's coming up, the 20-year-old that's coming into your agency is gonna be eventually running the agency. So <laughs> the quicker you get them to that point, the more knowledge they have and this, the smoother the ship sails.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you touched on something before that I totally agree with, which is reverse mentoring. It goes mm-hmm. two ways. So I was just thinking I need a marketing intern to help me launch the spare room. And I can I can hire a number of people, but I kind of thought this would be a great opportunity for a reverse mentoring relationship where somebody can learn and work with me, but I can learn so much as well, working with a younger person who frankly understands social media much better than me and is used to working on seven different channels at the same time and sending me something as they're talking to me. And that's exactly who I found. I found this awesome young woman, Kendall, and you know she's she's figuring out how to do her university school work from home. She's figuring out how to be the director of marketing for her sorority, and now she's supporting me. and. I just look at how dynamic she is and how agile, and I think, oh my gosh, what a privilege for me to work with her as well.
0: You don't stop learning. And I think you you said a few minutes ago, you were like, I'm gonna keep on working for another 20 years. And I was gonna be like, I see working for another 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I, don't think, yeah. I don't think you and I are the people that are gonna slow down. Like right. you'll be publishing another book. You're gonna be like, I am 90 years old. I've got another book. Here's <laughs> what I learned. And that's wonderful.
1: I think so. I think so. I mean, I remember when I was just starting at P&G, they had sort of the rule of 55, I think, or 50, but it's basically people, people when I was younger, sort of had one or two jobs max, right? And they worked through to retirement age. That's what my, my father did. And it was it was um, I'm glad to have a stable job and I just want to stay here and slowly climb the ranks. And I still think, you know, I, I spent 11 years at p so I certainly had tenure at one company because I felt like I constantly hit that formula of being able to contribute and to continue learning. And that's like such a gift. So I, I think we're in a different world today. Right. People don't just stay at one company for their entire career. Some do. And that's great if they can continue moving within. And, you know, I encourage people as much as you can, if you're, if you're feeling like you want to try something new, can you try within your own company, you know, a company like McCann that you and I both touched, but there's so many different agencies. Do you really need to leave to go find a new opportunity or could you within, because you've already built your reputation, you know, the language of the company and you don't have to start fresh. I think those are benefits that sometimes you don't know when you're younger, but really, really help you in terms of accelerating each time you make a move.
0: It's so true. And I had another question, too, because you work across the waters and here. What's your advice for working in different countries and in, in leadership roles? Because I'm sure every, every place has a different culture. Like when you compare Shanghai to, to Seattle, what are the major differences that you've noticed? Yeah, I mean,
1: I'm the first question on on how to navigate different countries, the best advice I got was from Ravi Chattervidi, who invited me into my first role in Guangzhou in the early 2000s he just said, enter softly. I think he also knew me, right? He hired me. So he knew I had a big personality and I love to share and talk and exchange. But he said, enter softly, like just pull back. Don't not be you, but listen. And I think that's the most important thing, not just listen, but observe. So, so I'm gonna kind of segue that into the second question, which is like some of the differences. So for instance, in the States, the leader sits at the head of the table and kicks off the meeting, right? And you can you can very easily read the signals of who is the leader in the room. In China it's the opposite. All the the junior people will speak first and the leader only voices at the end or at the most sort of critical moment. So if you come in as an American into a big Chinese meeting and sit in a boardroom and just start kicking off, you immediately minimize your own leadership and your own reputation because you're now seen as a junior person who doesn't understand how things work. That's just a very tangible example. I think there are others like unspoken rules, you know in in the states we email quickly and it's very easy for me you know and i've been going back and forth on email like hey how's this time hey how about this here's the link and that's just how we engage but in china that could be seen as rude because it's it's more of a community environment and it's more of a i'm caring for you not just trying to get my own agenda done and so you'll learn to write things in a slightly different way like Here's the shared objective that we have, and here's what I think would be the helpful next step. <laughs> so I think it's in written communication, it's in optics and how you show up, and it's in all of those cultural mores. It just takes time to learn, and you know there are plenty of countries I haven't worked. And I think if I had the opportunity to go there, I love it. I love it because you feel like a fish out of water, and you are in this air, in this place of discomfort. And I personally love that feeling because it forces you to be on your toes and learn and observe and try things out and you you can't be afraid of failure. I think that's probably my last thing, when you're going into a new place, whether it's a new country or a new company, you have to be willing to step into it because you're in, you might as well go both feet in and then learn as you go. You're gonna find certain things don't work or you're gonna find certain things didn't land the way you intended. You know, I recently had a conversation with my boss where I was like, okay, somebody took something away that was not at all what I took away. How did that happen? Is there a language that isn't translating? Or is there, you know, a vernacular that I'm missing? And I think we have to be humble enough to be able to ask those questions. Otherwise, we just don't know what we don't know.
0: I've had a meeting like that this summer and I was like, did we did we all leave the same meeting? Cause I was like, I totally took like different notes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that happens. And I'm like, I'm like, wait, there had to be like a third person taking notes, right? Because I, I heard one thing. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, That's I'm so like, how, how, I'm like, and I was paying attention. <laughs> And I was trying really hard to pay attention. Yeah. So how how did I miss here? But it happens. Yeah. It happens. Yeah. I always tell young people in advertising, especially like if you can get a job at a different agency, like if you're not breaking into an agency in the U.S., go abroad, go to Amsterdam, go to South Africa, go wherever you can get a job at a large agency and you'll have that experience and then you'll come back to the States and you'll have a little bit something more in your back pocket and you already have agency experience. You know, having multiple languages and traveling makes you just a, a larger asset to an agency because you have global experience and you can work on different brands. Yeah. And uh, and it just makes you a more interesting person too. If you can, you know, switch, switch channels, as I call it, you know, you talk about the power of and, right? It's about unlocking new opportunity. And you talk about like taking new jobs. If people have a fear of it, right? Because we always come back to fear. What is your advice for people? people to say yes. It's kind of like opening up that door in your house, right? Just like, just doing it. Mm-hmm. So um, how can people say and if they have a hard time saying saying and? So there's this board game called the worst case scenario.
1: <laughs> I, I like thinking about the worst case scenario because when you distill your fear, because fear is normally what keeps us from moving forward in, in any circumstance, right? You start realizing what that there's really not that much to be afraid of. Okay, so what's the worst case scenario here, right? Um, when we brought Teo into our home, he was not expected to live very long. So the worst case scenario is this little baby dies in our house. Well, isn't it better that he dies in our house and in a cold orphanage on the floor, you know, not feeling somebody's arms around him? Well, yeah, so that made it easy. You know. <laughs> what's the worst case scenario for trying to write a book for a year? The worst case is maybe nobody ever hires me again afterward. Well, that would be tough, but then I can go get a lesser job and we're going to have enough to eat on the, t- you know, food on the table. So is it still worth pursuing a passion project that I really feel driven to go try? I think it is. So I think sometimes when you just break it down to the worst case scenario, you realize, but that's something I could live with, right? That's not the end of the world. And then let me go back and interrogate that fear that's keeping me from taking the next step forward, maybe I don't need to be as afraid. And once I can articulate the fear and articulate what the worst case scenario is, then I realize, yeah, I, I can accept both of those things. So let's at least take the next step. Or, or I think the other advice would be give it a time frame, right? Like with the book, walking away from work and my husband didn't have a full-time job, you know, so we, like tangible things, like we didn't have health care, and we were uh, moving temporarily to the States. How, how do we want to handle all of that? Well, I think if it's an undefined length of time, that could add an extra layer of stress. But we kind of said, let's give it a year. And I know it's unlikely, highly unlikely to write and publish a book in a year. But I wanted to give myself a year to do that project, right? And then after that year, let's see what happens. And we just felt really, really serendipitously lucky that it all did happen within a year, almost to the day.
0: Hey, <laughs> it doesn't happen happens. that way. And I think yeah. But some but sometimes when you create that energy, like the universe aligns for you to get whatever you want. It's like really weird. But I, I've seen it happen in my own life. It's like, whoa, it's it's wild. It's like this magical like matrix. It's like the path. I call it I, I call it being on the path. Like everything, like it's the path and it gets illuminated. <laughs> you know, now that you're grown up, what is your dream as an adult? I think a lot of my dreams are for my daughter and i think
1: the most important thing to say is i don't have a specific dream or definition of success for her like i think you know growing up with immigrant parents they definitely had a defined dream for me and i don't think i went on that path and i think that was a bit of a challenge for a number of years but i think at the end of the day you know they would they would be pleased that i'm happy and i'm successful and i have a family that i adore but for her it's like how, how do we leave the world? First of all, as some would say, not completely messed up. How do we leave it in a good place for the next generation? How do I set her up to be successful? That's one of the reasons that we were really keen to have her finish her education in China. Because being able to speak fluent Mandarin and to understand the culture, the culture even more than the language, I think is going to be really important for her.
0: Yeah, but you know, it's funny that you talk about daughters, you know, because it's it's all about that dream for the daughter, right? Like, how can you make this person happy? And how can you just make sure that they grow up to be a happy person and, and successful in their own right. How do you help them discover themselves and their own purpose?
1: Exactly. I think we have a number of things. You know, one thing I realized growing up as a, a Chinese kid is you want your parents to be proud of you. That is the ultimate, right? Gosh, I, I going back to the mentoring conversation, I remember the first time Vivian, my mentor, said to me, um, I'm so proud of you. I literally broke down into tears. I did because I'd never really heard an adult say that to me before. And I realized it means a lot to me, but you know what? It shouldn't mean that much to me, right? That's, that's almost unhealthy. Like at the end of the day, we shouldn't just be working for other people to be proud of us. I I want my daughter to have enough self-confidence that she's proud of herself. So we have this routine at night. We've done it ever since before she could even speak. And my husband and I role modeled it. And now we, even now she's 12, we do it every night. We call it HPG, happy proud and gratitude and each person we go around the room and say what was my happiest moment my high for the day and then what is the thing that I'm proud of and you know I'll tell you even as an adult it's uncomfortable for me to say what am I proud of myself
0: but it's right. important
1: to role model that and to have my daughter become accustomed to saying I'm proud of something and you know one of the things we'll ask is like what failure are you proud of what did you try and not succeed in and how do you feel proud of it like why why are you proud and help her become familiar with that feeling of A, failing and B, being like, that was okay. Hey, you know what? I did a good thing by trying because I think a lot of people don't have that growing up. And then failure, we hit hard or we become embarrassed or ashamed of those moments. And I think if I can teach her and help her become familiar in that sort of skin, I think that's something we can do as parents. And then gratitude, of course, is what is the thing that I'm grateful for today?
0: I think that's so beautiful. And I think, you know, that that makes you who you are in the world. (laughs) and that's that's the light of yeah. uh it's the light of emily and it's the light that your daughter is gonna have i i need to go feed someone but emily thank you so much oh my god my baby is going crazy
1: it's okay i'm not talking oh to you we made it
0: over thank you so much for being on the show and feel free to always ping me i'm here so thank you so much for making it happen right. and uh, you're such an inspiration <laughs> have so a great day <laughs> Bye. Thanks for tuning into the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share it on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Dream Nation Love. It's not Dream Nation Podcast, it's Dream Nation Love because I think my single mission in life is to teach people how to love a little bit more and together we can save the world. So it's Dream Nation Love, share it with your friends, have a great day, and go out and make the world a better place.